Good morning, everyone. Okay, let me try that again. Good morning, everyone. Okay, much better. So, it's a joy to be with you this morning. Joy to open God's Word with you. Um, crazy enough, we are coming to the end of the book of Philippians. So, we've, uh, yeah, after after this sermon, we would have finished working our way through the whole book. And uh, it's been a joy to do so uh, with you. So, by way of introduction this morning... Um, why do you think it is that we love money? We love money. And of course, by its very nature, money is power, right? Power to get what I want. I may have one preference, you may have one preference, but as long as I have money and you have money, we can take that money and spend it to get what we want. And now, of course, we've all heard... Uh, sayings like money can't buy everything or the best things in life are free. True, right? But let's be honest, there is a lot that money can buy. There's a lot that money can buy. Uh, Obviously food, and if I have enough money, really delicious food. Uh, Clothing, and if I have enough money, some very stylish clothing. A place to stay, and if I have enough money, a beautiful, spacious, nice place to stay. Money can buy us lots of things that make life more convenient, more comfortable, more fun, more entertaining. Money can also buy us security, an electric fence or an alarm system, a house in a safer neighborhood or in a security complex. Car insurance, so that I can get a new car if this one gets stolen. Access to better hospitals and to really good health insurance. And of course, money can buy better education for our children. Nicer holidays for our family to enjoy and build memories together. The ability to give more expensive gifts and on and on and on. Now, of course, some of these things I've listed are more important than others. Some are much more understandable for us to want to have or perhaps even feel that we need on some level. Uh, And others are are much more superficial, much more uh, shallow, if we want to put it that way. But it's not hard to imagine why people want to have money. And for that matter, uh, not just people in the abstract, but why we want to have more money. And with it, the ability to get whichever of these things we want. Now, you don't have to answer this out loud, but let me ask you to consider this. Do you personally have enough money? Do you have enough money? Now, a while ago, Heather and I made the decision to help a friend uh, with the expense of his theological studies. And uh, we told him we'd help him with so much per month. And he was very thankful. Uh, he said 
something to us along the lines of, you know, you guys, you're so generous. I know that you would, you would pay the full cost of my studies if you could. And those were very kind words, um, but they got me thinking. And I realized that they probably weren't true words. Because uh, I got thinking, you know, how much more money would I need before I thought that I had enough to give him the full amount that he needed. If, you know, if my friend still needed, let's say, 2,000 Rand a month towards his studies, and I got a salary increase of 2,000 Rand a month, I wondered to myself, would, would I give him that 2,000 towards his studies? I mean, I, I, I hadn't had that 2,000 before. I was living on, on a certain salary before. I didn't need that 2,000 before. I was getting by okay without it. But now, if I had this 2000 I realized that I could very, very quickly make a long list of things I could spend that 2000 on. Or at least most of it, right? Most of it. And I realized, wow, I'd like to think that if I was in that position where suddenly I, I had 2000 more to give per month, I'd like to think that my friend was right, that I would give it all to him to help him prepare for ministry, to cover his costs, to help him advance the gospel. I'm not really sure that I would have. I'm not really sure that I cared for him as deeply as I would have liked to think I did, or that I cared for the advance of the gospel as much as I would like to think I did. There's a story about a man, a wealthy man, named John D. Rockefeller, uh, apparently being asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? Okay, now this is one of the most wealthy men in the world at the time. How much money is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we often think and feel the same way. Just a little bit more. Which is why it's so hard to be content, right? To be satisfied, to be happy with what we have. And one reason it's difficult for us to be truly sacrificially generous with our money. Because we always think, you know, if I had just that little bit more, I would give more. But it never quite feels like I have enough now. It often feels like we could use just a little bit more. In our passage today, we'll learn from Paul's example of contentment and from the Philippian church's example of generosity. So follow along with me, please. We're in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. 
Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, what's the situation here? What are the circumstances uh, around uh, which, uh, well, that this this passage is taking place in? Um, So, as you'll remember, we've been working our way through this book, and it is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. Um, He started this church some 10 years ago. He's had a long relationship with this church. Now he's in prison, possibly even facing execution. And the Philippian church have generously and sacrificially supported him over the years, as they've been able. And they just recently sent a man from their church, Epaphroditus, to travel probably about six weeks in total, one way, to take a financial gift to Paul and to seek to be an encouragement to him in prison. And Paul has sent this letter back with Epaphroditus to the Philippian church. And he's already thanked them uh, in the beginning of the letter for the gift and for their wholehearted partnership, their their fellowship with him. Uh, Remember we've talked about how that that term fellowship is not just about uh, friendship, but it's about partnership and co-laboring together towards a shared goal. Um, And now he closes out this letter by expressing his thanks again. Uh, Or rather we could say that rather than thanking them directly, he expresses his gratitude by telling the Philippians how he has joy in the Lord, how he praises God for them and for their generosity towards him. He says in verse 18, he has received full payment and more. He says he is well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that they sent. So he's very grateful for this gift. But as grateful as he is for their generosity, note what Paul says in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Okay, so he says, look, but before I got the gift, I, I wasn't in need. Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I've, I've got hardly anything. But I'm not speaking of being in need. For what? For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. To be content. And that's what we'll be looking at first. Paul's example of contentment from verses 10 to 13. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
And he really does mean whatever situation. He continues in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And this is not just talk. Paul really has experienced these extremes. As one example of several from elsewhere in the New Testament, we see the real hardships Paul endured in 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 27 says, uh, as he's describing what he was going through, he talks about toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And of course... Paul's in prison right now as he writes this letter. He knows what it is to be brought low. He knows what it is to face hunger and need. And the other extreme? Well, there would have been several times on his missionary journeys when he was hosted by wealthy believers who loved and appreciated him. Believers like Lydia, who we saw uh, was the first... um, When the Philippian church began, she hosted the Philippian church in her home. And she was uh, a wealthy um, dealer in in dyed garments. So, even blessings like this though, right? Even these opportunities to enjoy something extra special and nice can be a temptation. As an example, we, we truly try to make our children's birthdays special. And I think this is a good thing. Uh, we, we let them pick what they want for breakfast on the day. Uh, we check ahead of time because, you know, they, they really take this seriously. Okay, so we've got, to, we've got to make sure we get the right supplies. So they get to choose what they want for breakfast, for afternoon snack, for supper. And though we don't normally have dessert uh, in our homes, they can pick they can pick a dessert uh, for their birthday as well. And can also pick a movie to watch or a game to play. And the whole the whole day is focused on that kid. Um, and as I said, I do think it's a good thing to show them that they're special to us, and that we're thankful uh, for them and for another year of their lives. But nonetheless. We notice in the week or two following, there's, things are a little bit more difficult in some respects, right? This child who used to be very satisfied with toast for breakfast is now very disappointed that toast is all there is for breakfast, right? And... Uh, Every movie choice, now suddenly they're disappointed when they don't just get to, uh, to call the shots and, and everyone just doesn't just drop everything and say, oh, okay, you want to watch that? Well, it's your special day. They want to know why it is that we don't have dessert in our home more often. See, when we get nice things... So often what that does in our hearts is generate a desire for more and more and more. Rather than 
recognizing it as something special and just enjoying it as such, we say, okay, I want this all the time. Thank you. Even times of plenty and abundance can tempt us to discontentment. And Paul says, by God's grace, he has learned how to be content in any and every circumstances, including both these extremes. But notice this. Paul has learned this. He has learned it. It's not something that comes naturally to him due to personality. It was something he had to learn, and it was something that he learned over the course of time. He says that he learned it through these experiences, through many years of ups and downs, uh, and even extremes ups and downs. He's been on a roller coaster that God has used to grow him and to teach him contentment. So from that, we need to learn. We can't make the excuse that we're just not wired like that. We, we can't be content in all circumstances like Paul because Paul was just different. No, Paul had to learn it as well. Paul had to learn it as well. But on the flip side, we also shouldn't be discouraged when we realize that this is difficult for us, that it doesn't come naturally to us. Because it didn't come naturally to even someone as godly as the Apostle Paul. He had to learn it as well. And he had to learn it over time. How do we grow in contentment then? Paul says he learned the secret, the secret of being content in every circumstance. And he tells us what that secret is in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is probably one of the most misquoted and misapplied verses in the whole Bible. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, uh, keeping a little card with this verse on it in the pocket of my rugby shorts when I was playing rugby, because I was convinced that I could do, I could score tries and make big tackles and win the game. Right? By Christ who strengthens me. But of course, it's taking this verse horribly out of context. Okay? I can't just claim this as a promise for whatever I want to put my energy towards. All things in this passage refers to the situations Paul has just described. He can endure all these situations having plenty and having very little. He can uh, be in the midst of abundance or need and still be content. He's able to be content by Christ who strengthens him. That's what this verse is saying. Now, it would be inaccurate, overly spiritual and unbiblical to think that Paul's point is that we should be people who don't enjoy things in this life or who never desire better earthly circumstances. That's not what we mean by contentment. What we mean by contentment is to be satisfied. Okay? To feel like what you have is enough. To be able to be happy and joyful in the midst of your circumstances. We see Jesus himself attended and enjoyed feasts and weddings. He fed those who were hungry. 
and he healed the sick. He didn't just look at them and say, accept your hunger, accept your sickness. But God honoring contentment does recognize, right, that there is far more to life than earthly comfort. As Jesus warns us in Luke 12, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, against right, envying what other people have, wanting what other people have, wanting more. For one's life does not consist, it does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. We can be content in any situation as Paul was, by walking with God and remembering and enjoying, as Ephesians 1 tells us, that He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In many ways, true contentment goes hand in hand with what we've been, uh, with what we've been seeing uh, in previous sermons from earlier in chapter 4 of Philippians. We looked at Paul's call to rejoice always and to not be anxious about anything, but to be thankful in everything. And we looked at the fact that that is possible because of things that are deeper than our obvious circumstances. Things that are very, very real, but not visible. Like our union with Christ and all the spiritual blessings it brings. And things that God is doing in and through our difficult situations. Working things together for our good, behind the scenes, so to speak. And things that are promised and certain and guaranteed, but are only coming in the future. We have so much to rejoice in in Christ. We've been made right with God. And we have God's fatherly love and attentive care. We have the power of the resurrection at work within us, helping us grow more and more into the image of Christ. We have God's promise to never leave us and His promise to use even the worst difficulties in our lives to grow us. We have the amazing blessing of being used by God in advancing the gospel and ministering to others. We have a glorious eternity awaiting us without any pain or problems present with our Savior forever. And brothers and sisters, we have the promise that nothing can take any of that away from us. So this is what strengthens us to be content. Our relationship and walk with Christ. I might not have opportunities to eat out at fancy restaurants and go on fancy holidays every year, but I have the new heavens and the new earth awaiting me. I am not the CEO of a big company, but I am an ambassador of King Jesus, entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. I don't have much now in terms of material things, but my Heavenly Father is taking care of me and using every detail in my life for my good. I miss the times, perhaps, when I did have more. The comforts, the tastes, the fun... But these fleeting, shallow pleasures in this life are not what I'm living for anymore. 
They're not what life consists of for me anymore. I can face every circumstance and be content because of the bigger picture, because of Jesus and all I have in Him. Secondly, let's look at the Philippians example of generosity. This is in verses 14 through 20. We can see that their generosity is motivated by love for their family in Christ. In verse 10, Paul speaks of the Philippians' gift and the effort in sending it to him through Epaphroditus as evidence of their concern for him. Their concern for him. And then in verse 14, he says that they shared his trouble. The Philippians loved Paul. And when they heard of his difficult circumstances, they wanted to help relieve his trouble. They felt compassion for him in his difficult circumstances. Compassion that didn't just stop at sympathy, but that expressed itself in action and effort. And we see the same compassion for the struggles of fellow believers elsewhere in the New Testament. When Paul talks of the Philippians' generosity when he was taking up an offering for other Christians who were suffering due to a famine. We also see that the Philippians' generosity is motivated by a burden to partner in the advance of the gospel. Paul says that the Philippians have a track record with him of partnering in the gospel. He shares in verse 15 and 16 that they have supported him in his missionary work regularly before. And at times they were even the only ones doing so. Due to lack of opportunity of some sort, uh, he doesn't uh, elaborate on what it was, there was a period of time when when they, they weren't sending him support. But as verse 10 says, when they had that opportunity again, they resumed their giving. It's important, brothers and sisters, to realize that giving towards missions is exactly what Paul calls it here. It's partnership for the advance of the gospel. It is a very real, tangible way to work with other believers together as a team to spread the gospel and fulfill the great commission that Jesus has given us. We see that the Philippians' generosity is evident, uh, evidence of God's work in them. And that is an encouragement to Paul. That's in verse 17. Paul says, not that I seek the gift. Right? He's thankful for the gift. But he says, what I seek is the fruits. The fruits that increases to your credit. Fruits. Okay? Evidence of God's work in them. Paul sees apples and that proves that they are an apple tree. He sees righteous living, Christian living, that proves that they are Christians and growing Christians. And that's what brought Paul the most joy from their gift. When Heather and I were still in America raising support to be missionaries in South Africa... I was sitting in a coffee shop one morning 
And I saw this status from a friend on Facebook. And it said, well, today is the two-month mark at my new job. It's going good so far. Thank you for your prayers. And so somebody commented on that and, and he responded to it saying, uh, just giving the fuller context, he said, I've been out of work off and on for three years. My income supports six. One is in college. We're trying to keep our house, etc. And this same man, he and his wife, had started sending us very generous monthly gifts two months uh, prior to that. And it suddenly dawned on me that as soon as this man who had had no work for three years, struggling to support a family of six, struggling to afford house payments, as soon as he got a job, as soon as he had income, he started giving to missions. And I just sat there in that coffee shop, absolutely sobbing. <laughs> um, and it just, you know, I'd known for two months he was giving. And I was thankful for the giving. That was a blessing. But nowhere near the level of encouragement that came when I realized his faith, his generosity, his sacrifice, his trust in God to know that if he was going to prioritize what God wanted him to prioritize, that God was going to meet his needs. That he didn't have to think, well, I haven't had a job in three years. Let me hold on to every cent. I'll, I'll think about starting to give to God again once, I, once I, I've had this job uh, for a year or two, you know. No, from the moment he got that new job, he started to give. Huge, huge encouragement. And that is often the case, brothers and sisters. Our giving is not just about meeting the actual needs. It's about the encouragement that it is to other believers to know that we, we really are loved as the family we are in Christ. And to, of course, see, as, I've, as I said, examples of, of faith and trust and sacrifice for the kingdom. We also see here that the Philippians' generosity is an investment in eternity. It's an investment in eternity. Verse 17 continues, Paul says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit of that increases to your credit. Okay? This fruit, this outworking of your faith, this, the, the generosity, it is, uh, it, the, your generosity increases to your credit. What does he mean by that? Well, as one author put it, when we die, we can't take any of our money or possessions with us but we can send them on ahead of us. And what he means by that is that we can invest in eternity by spending money on eternal things now, on things that will last now. Now, please hear me very clearly. 
The last thing we're talking about here is buying salvation. There is no way we could ever do that, even with millions and millions and millions. The Bible is very, very clear on that. But the Bible also talks about being rewarded in eternity for faithfulness. Being rewarded for our gospel ministry now. So Paul rejoices because he sees these Christians that he has loved, that he has discipled, that he has taught, that he has encouraged. And he sees them living out the Christian life and, and, and he realizes, okay, this is evidence of their salvation. It's evidence of their growth. And I also love the fact they're investing in eternity and that they're going to be rewarded for this and, and get to enjoy those rewards forever. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. We see the Philippians' generosity pleases God and glorifies Him. In verse 18, Paul says that the gifts they sent are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, it's, it's imagery from the Old Testament, right? When, when people would, would bring an offering to God, a, a, um, a thank offering or, or, or a, um, you know, various offerings on, on, on various special occasions. Uh, and they would they'd bring these, these offerings and the way God would describe offerings that were, uh, that, that met uh, what he was looking for is he would talk about this pleasing aroma. Okay? This is a sacrifice. It's, it's something that is being done as an act of worship and it's something that's being received by God as an act of worship that he approves of. That pleases him. And in verse 20, Paul points out that this sort of generosity, this sort of partnership in the gospel, glorifies God. Brothers and sisters, generosity for the care of other Christians and the advance of the gospel is worship. It's worship. It's something we can do to express our love for God. And it pleases him. And lastly, we can see the Philippians' generosity is enabled as they trust God's care. In verse 19, Paul says, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The Philippians can give generously, even sacrificially, because they can trust that God will meet their needs. Now this is... This is not to be confused with the prosperity gospel. We're not saying here, sow a seed and ask God and expect from God whatever you want. The passage does not say that God will meet all our wants. It says that we can trust our Father to take care of us and give us what we need. Okay? This passage should also not be misunderstood 
as a reason to be reckless with our money, to give away money that actually we owe someone else and that isn't technically our money, right? Rent money. I might be in my bank account right now, but I've made a promise to somebody to pay it to them on this date every single month. I don't get to choose to spend that money differently. That money is not mine to make that choice with. That money is money that has been promised to somebody else. So we're not saying here, okay, you hear about a need and the only money you have left in your bank account is what you need to pay for rent next month, but just give this money out to meet the need and hope that somehow, some way, you'll have money for your rent next week. No. But a decision to spend a little bit less on entertainment, a decision to eat more simply this month, a decision to drive a little bit less and spend a little bit less on petrol so that you can give to meet the needs of struggling Christians or to help advance the gospel. That is a good God-honoring decision. That is generosity that is made possible as we trust God and trust His provision. Money can hold a lot of power over our hearts. It's a good tool, and in fact, it's even a necessary tool. It's no way to live life without using money. We do need money. But it must remain a tool. It is not a good master. And Jesus makes clear, right? We can't live for two masters. We can't serve two masters. We can't live for God and for money. When we prioritize God and our walk with Him, when we diligently renew our minds with biblical truth about all that is ours in Christ and the big picture of this life and eternity and we keep things in perspective about what matters most, then we are freed from the control that money can have over our lives. We're freed to be content as Paul was in whatever situation we're in. And we're freed to be generous as the Philippians were with our money. Amen? Okay. Thank you.